0: Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Today we will talk about original sin. Hello and welcome to the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you ever have questions or comments, you can email me, Doctrine 4, that's the number 4, doxology at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at TheRealBearMartin. Now, sin is a universal problem. In In commenting about original sin, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, quote, Now, this is something that is agreed upon by all. They do not call it sin. Some are not willing to call it that. But in various ways, all people, whether they are Christians or not, have to admit that there is something wrong with man everywhere. Wherever you find him, it does not matter how primitive he may be, whether he is civilized or uncivilized, something in man is clearly lacking. There is something which causes misery. And unhappiness, G.K. Chesterton, talking about original sin, says, quote, "Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved." Now, <laughs> now on the surface, that may sound like a like a sacrilegious type of quote there, but what he's saying is, you just you know look around and you can you know that there is something wrong with humanity. That original sin, uh, in a sense, does exist. Now, what do we mean by original sin? Well, this is not the original sin as if it's an event, okay? It is not talking about when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that's not the original sin. It's not an event, Wayne Grudem and John Frame both refer to it as inherited sin to try to be a little more clear on on what this is talking about. So original sin is not an event or an action. Original sin is a condition. In this condition, we are separated from God. R.C. Sproul says, Original sin describes our fallen, sinful condition, out of which actual sins occur. Scripture does not tell us that we are sinners because we sin, Rather, it affirms that we sin because we are sinners. Let me read that part again. That's an important quote. Scripture does not tell us that we are sinners because we sin, rather, it affirms that we sin. Because we are sinners. So in original sin, we have this sinful condition, which leads to sinful habits, uh, which leads to sinful actions. That's how Martin Lloyd-Jones kind of describes this progression, okay? Now, so original sin is a condition. Also, original sin is separate from being truly human. So if you're asking yourself, what does it mean to be truly human? Original sin does not is not part of that to be a true human, okay, and how do we know this? Well, we look at Adam and we look at jesus Adam pre fall before sinning and eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil he He was truly human yet he was without original sin. Jesus also was truly human without original sin. Now that is massive that we understand that and and make sure we're clear on that because a Jesus that is not truly human, a Jesus that is just faking as if he's truly human, is, is not a true redeemer. And so Jesus was truly human. So original sin is separate from being truly human. Now, where that, where this gets tricky is because we use phrases all the time talking about sinful nature, okay? Have you ever heard this quote? Humans have a sinful nature. Now, what is meant by this is that sin infects everything, our mind, body, emotions, our nature, so to speak, is infected with sin, so we we have a sinful nature. However, sin is not required in order to be considered human. It's not part of true humanity. It's a condition that affects humans, okay? Now, a doctrinal statement, if you will, on on original sin from the lexham survey of theology is this quote original sin is the doctrine that as a result of adam's fall all mankind are sinners by nature having a propensity to sin that underlies every actual sin again sinners by nature does not mean it that's truly what a human being is it means it's it's infected every part of us okay now, they have a propensity to sin. Propensity is a, a natural tendency to behave in a certain way. And so we, we see this with sinners, okay? It is very easy and natural to sin. It takes effort to not sin. It's very easy for your house to be messy. It takes effort to keep it clean. So our natural tendency is towards sin, Okay and this is because we have the condition of original sin. Now this propensity to sin is a re- is a result of a defective heart. So the doctrine of original sin declares we have a heart condition which is naturally opposed to the things of God. So we yes, we have a free will and we are responsible for our actions, but our will is influenced by our heart and our heart is sick. Okay. Mark 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So sin is a heart condition. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? So we need a new heart. And that's promised to us in Ezekiel 36, 26, the Lord says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the Bible tells us the reason we sin is because of original sin. But the Bible never makes original sin an excuse for our sin, okay? So you are responsible for your sin. You cannot say, well, it's that original sin, you know, Adam ate the fruit and so now I have this this condition and I and and I just can't help it, um and that's why I sin. So therefore I'm not responsible. No, that is that is not a biblical category. So Original sin is not an excuse for sin. Another definition I really like is from the Lexham Bible Dictionary on original sin. It says, quote, Original sin is a term referring to the universal defect in human nature caused by the fall, entailing the loss of original righteousness and the distortion of the image of God. So at the fall, when Adam sinned, now, now that we have original sin, we we lose this original righteousness that Adam had. And now we we have original sin, and the, the the image of God. Adam was created in the image of God we are still made in the image of God, but that image is distorted, okay? So let's talk about Adam a little bit. In in thinking about Adam being created in original righteousness, Adam was able to sin. Obviously, he was because he did. He was also able to not sin, all right? So hang with me, especially um, when you're listening to this on audio. Sometimes these words can get can get tangled up, these phrases. So Adam was, one, able to sin. He was also, two, able to not sin, okay? Now, he was created in, in righteousness. Adam was positively righteous, is how theologians would would say it, okay? He, instead of having a propensity towards evil— Adam is created, he's placed in a, a wonderful garden, he walks with God in the cool of the day. He actually has a propensity toward holiness, toward righteousness, towards goodness. He is a good image of God, no distortion in that image. Now, we I mentioned this last week when we talked about the fall. Adam is not the final product. He still has to learn and gain wisdom and obey the Lord's commands and those types of things, but as he was made, he was positively righteous. He was in a right relationship with God. That's another way you could think about it, okay? So he was able to sin. He was able to not sin if he, if he obeyed the Lord, and then he was positively righteous. Now, what we contrast this to Adam's offspring, and you could also throw Adam into this after the fall, Adam's offspring are not able to not sin, Okay, we are not able to not sin, and we are now positively evil. Again, we have this propensity towards wickedness against God, and we are we have original sin. We are we are enemies of God. Uh, we are not in a right relationship with God. So that is our status now. That's our uh, condition due to original sin. All right. So there is no there there's never notice there's never neutrality, okay? There are, there are many things in Scripture that are mentioned. It is black or white, light or dark, condemned or justified, wicked or righteous. And then one that we're going to learn about today, you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There is no neutrality. Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty, whoever is not with me is against me. You can't just be neutral, okay? And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So in summary, original sin is a condition that, is, that we inherit because of Adam's sin, and it puts us at, in opposition to the things of God, all right? So that, that is the condition we have. Now, original sin can be further broken down into two categories. The first is what we're going to talk about today, and that is original guilt, and the second is original pollution, Okay, so original sin can be broken down into two subcategories, original guilt and original pollution. So original guilt, this idea that we inherit the guilt of sin from Adam, that is something that many people reject. So a lot of people have a problem with original guilt, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The second, original pollution more people can at least get you know get on board with that more people accept that at least in some way now kind of the the hardest uh doctrine of original pollution would be total depravity this this uh idea that man is infected to his very core in every aspect of his being and man is unable to respond to god without god first changing his heart okay that would be total depravity. But so some people may not go that far, but most people can get on board with this idea of original pollution. And so that's what next week's episode will be. But today we're talking about original guilt. Are we really guilty for Adam's sin? All right. And that's why obviously that's why many people reject this idea. Let me also just say that there are plenty of really you know godly men and women who disagree on this. So I'm not saying that if you don't agree with with what I believe that you're out of Christianity or whatever. So there there's definitely been some disagreement in church history over the years on this idea. But I think what as we look at Romans 5 I think what Paul is trying to to ground us in is this idea. And so we'll we're going we're going to get to that, all right? But just know that there's there's definitely a lot of disagreement in this area and I've lit, oh, man, this has been a week where I've listened to a lot of, of different opinions um you know the 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 internet is a wonderful resource there's youtube videos where people are interviewed who hold different positions have even written books on different positions and so uh, i've enjoyed uh, hearing a lot of that and this is kind of where i've landed uh, for for myself and what i believe but there there are definitely some some differences there all right so if you along the way if you've come up with a question or something you think is incorrect or unbiblical you know, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email, and because um, I want to, you know, you can actually sharpen me, and uh, and hopefully I'm I'm uh, giving you some things to think about here as well. All right. So when we think about original guilt, I think a healthy place to start is this idea, this question of how can one man's death pay the penalty for the sins of all mankind? All right. How does th- how exactly does that work? We got billions of people here sinning, and one man can die, and that pays for the sin of everybody. Well, a, a, a few things. First off, it, Jesus Christ is the God-man. So yes, he's truly man. He's also truly God. And Jesus Christ has infinite worth. His life is more valuable than all the lives of mankind added together. So so worth is not a problem there as far as the worth of his life. All right. Uh, number two, though, we are condemned by the actions of one man. All right. And so that's that's my argument here. And that's, I think, what Paul is trying to teach us in Romans 5, that we are condemned as guilty by the actions of one man, that being Adam. Therefore, it is right and just of God to justify us by the actions of one man, that being Jesus Christ. So all of us are perfectly fine with the free gift of righteousness that we have in Christ, but it is our natural inclination to reject being condemned by the actions of Adam, all right? Now, how is this guilt from Adam Passed down. How how is original sin even uh, passed down to us? There are two main theories that I want to talk about. The first one is called realism. Another name for this would be seminalism. All right. So, in thinking about these, uh, an easy way to remember it is for realism. Just think, this is the idea that you were really there in the garden with Adam as he sinned. Okay. You were in some way really there, present, sinning with him okay and then seminalism is is another name for this same theory okay and if you if you write out seminalism you only have to change one letter and you will get semen as part of the of the first part okay so this has to do with the seed or the semen of adam okay and so when when we think about a biblical argument for realism or seminalism the the passage about Melchizedek and Levi that Levi paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. That's in he in Hebrews seven. That's the the passage that people use to point to this idea. So let me walk you through that real quick. In Genesis, Mel uh, Abraham wins a battle. And he is met, on kind of on his return, he is met by Melchizedek, who's said to be the king of Salem. Melchizedek brings bread and wine to Abraham. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. Okay, so it is clear in the passage that Melchizedek is the greater, he he is greater than Abraham all right, because Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham. If you think about this, the father is greater than the son, so the father pronounces a blessing on the son many times in the Bible. Um, There's a, a hierarchy there, okay? And so Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, here's where the author of Hebrews is going to bring this in. The author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is the the true great high priest. But for a Jew, they know that the high priest must be a descendant of the line of Levi, according to the order of Levi, Okay, the Levitical priesthood. But Jesus is not from Levi. And so the author of Hebrews, what he's saying is that Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is greater than Levi, okay? All right, so that's the argument there. And the way that the author of Hebrews establishes this argument is he says, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, all right? So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and basically... Levi would be a descendant of Abraham, so in a way, Levi was present in the loins of Abraham, so to speak, as Abraham was paying this tithe. So basically, Levi can be considered to also have paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. All right, that's that's the argument that's being made. So let me give you kind of the key verses there. Um, this is Hebrews 7, and I'll just read verses 7 through 10. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, that would be talking about Abraham, is blessed by the superior, that is Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor, that is Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. All right, so Levi was in the loins, and I'm using quotations there, of Abraham, just as Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Okay, so just as uh Levi was there with Abraham paying tithes that in the same way Adam sinned and we were really there sinning alongside of Adam. That's how the the realism seminalism argument works, okay? For for the way that our guilt um and and even even original pollution, original sin in general is passed down. So some people will hold to that argument. It's a it's a little bit strange. Um, but that's that's one of the ways that it's defended biblically uh, the other the other way the other common way is this idea of federalism that Adam is our or, or was our federal head, he is our representative okay so a common illustration would be much like a congressman represents us in raleigh and in Washington well i'm in Raleigh wherever you are listening out there um, he they represent us. In Raleigh and Washington, and so their their vote, their choice, it's a representation of our choice. Now, the immediate problem that we have with that is sometimes there's a congressman that you did not actually choose as your representative; they just won the overall vote, and so that that immediately makes us think, "Well, wait a second, I didn't choose that person to represent me." Well, and and that's where people have a problem with Adam. They say, "Well, I, you know, no one ever asked me if Adam could be my representative." Representative, um, but yet the sin of Adam is imputed to you. You are guilty. You are declared guilty because of Adam's sin. So the immediate response is that's not fair. Well, I would say who are you to question the justice of God? Okay, so if God was allowed, let's just hypothetically say that God was a, was going to pick a representative to accurately represent you then you know god should be god should be really good at that don't you think that he would be able to pick one that would accurately represent your choices well that that is what's happening here with adam god has selected adam as a representative and adam made the same choice that you would have made in that situation that's that's what god is is saying there when when the original sin and guilt from adam's sin is passed down as our federal head, as our representative, he's making that decision. And so we are, in a sense, guilty of the sin that Adam committed, okay? Now, Jesus Christ is the federal head of all those, the the, the representative, that is, of all those who have faith in him. He is called the last Adam in Scripture. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we have this idea of the imputed righteousness. So we are imputed guilt from Adam, we are imputed righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So through faith, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. We are declared righteous, okay? That, That would be justification. So that's the idea of federalism and that that Adam and Jesus are both federal heads and you are either in Adam you by default you are in Adam and then through faith in Jesus Christ he is your new representative okay and you and then you are you are said to be in Christ and that that phrase throughout the New Testament is very popular to be in Christ if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation okay now, when we come to Romans 5.12 and following, all the way down to 21, this is probably the key passage for original sin. Where That's kind of where the idea develops from Scripture. Again, it is a it is a complex passage, and there are differences of opinion in, in how this should be interpreted, uh, but this is what I think is being said here, all right? So let me read Romans 5.12. This is probably the main verse for original sin, and then we'll walk through this passage. Obviously I can't go through it I mean you could preach multiple sermons on this on these verses so I can't hit all the details but I'm basically trying to establish this concept that we are we have inherited guilt from Adam we are guilty of sin based on Adam's sin okay all right so Romans 5:12 says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, this verse starts out with therefore. Anytime you see that in the Bible, you need to look previously and see what Paul is talking about. Uh, Some people say "This this is kind of like a... A turning point in the whole letter that that this therefore is is taking into consideration everything that Paul has written so far, and and I can I can see that, but also in the immediate context. Paul has just talked about our assurance of having peace with God, that we are reconciled to God, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So I think what in, in the immediate context here, Paul is going to give us an argument for the assurance that we have in, in Jesus Christ, that we are that we are reconciled to God, that we are made right with God in Jesus Christ. He he's going to give us assurance and he's going to use this argument. He's basically going to say the the same assurance that you have that you are a sinner because of Adam, you can have that same assurance that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you uh, you are forgiven, you are justified, you are right with God, you are reconciled, all right? And so that's that's how he's going to and, he, and he's going to answer that question essentially, how can one man pay for the penalty and, and and represent all of uh mankind in the way Jesus Christ does. Okay. So that's I think what Paul is saying there. We can see a little bit of this this idea in Romans five, one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the verses leading right up to our main passage today, Romans five, verses eight through eleven. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us, since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. all right, so there's the assurance that we have, and, and paul's going to um Paul's going to give further details on that in our in our verses. Now, in verse 12, he says therefore, we just talked about what that means, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What happens here is Paul says just as and you're you're thinking okay, this is if you read the Bible, uh, well the writings of Paul, he he thinks like this very logically he makes an argument just as this so also this okay as this so this all right and so what he's going to do here is he's going to start in on one of these these statements and you're expecting him to say so also da 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 but he kind of gets sidetracked or he has to clarify a little deeper and so really he he gives us more information And then in verses 18 and 19 of this passage, he's going to kind of—I think he's kind of summarizing that same argument, and he completes the statement in a few different ways, okay? And so he says, "...just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned," and then he gives more details, in verse eighteen, he says, "Therefore, and I think this is the same, therefore, as twelve, okay he's kind of coming back around to his argument, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men For uh, verse nineteen, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made." Righteous, okay. So that I think that's the the summary statement there by Paul that he kind of starts out in on twelve and then finishes it off. Okay, so going back to verse twelve here's where people that disagree with this concept of original guilt, that we actually inherit guilt from Adam, um, they'll say, you know, we we inherit the consequences of Adam's sin, so we, we die, we live in this corrupt world, we have a corrupted nature that gives us a propensity towards sin, so we inherit the consequences of that, but we're not actually guilty, we're not considered guilty of Adam's sin. What people use here in verse 12 is this phrase, so death spread to all men. All right, so I've heard several different people who advocate for that view go to this phrase, and they say, see here, it is not sin. We're not all guilty. Guilt did not spread to all men. It's just death. It's the consequence. So death spread to all men. But I think it's important to keep reading, and because it says, because all sinned. I think that is really important, because if if Adam's sin was the reason death spread, then I think it would say, and so death spread to all men because Adam sinned. But it doesn't say that. It says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All right? And so this is is not this is not just that death spread because Adam sinned. This is death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, some people will say that this phrase all sinned is telling us directly that that, our, that sin is in Adam. Um, it's one of those situations where there's differences of opinion on how to interpret the Greek verb there and different things like that. Um, and so I don't intend to to go into all those arguments, but I think it's pretty clear. It says, because all sin, death spread to all men. Why? Not because of Adam's sin. And Adam's sin is not the reason death spread. It's because, of, because all sinned. So I think it's very clear in the Bible that if you die—and this this statement is very important to the way I see it here and the argument I'm trying to make—but biblically, it seems like if you die, that is a result—that basically means you are a sinner, okay? So you die because you are a sinner. Now, obviously, Jesus is an exception to that, and here's the difference: He voluntarily gave up his life. So there is nothing that you and I can do about our death. We we are sinners, and we will die. Now, certainly, people give up their life, so to speak. Um, you think about uh, soldiers giving up their life to save uh, the rest of the troops, or you know, different things like that. But uh, so so they're making a choice there. But I'm saying that if no matter what we could put ourselves in a bubble we will die okay we cannot voluntarily give up voluntarily give up our life but Jesus did. John ten eighteen, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Philippians two eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember there that he's that he humbled himself by becoming obedient because we'll read of Jesus obedience here in the uh, in the following verses in Romans 5 as well all right so Jesus laid down his life that makes him an exception to the rule here that if you die it means you are a sinner obviously Jesus came to save sinners that that points us to the next question why did Jesus die okay he died to save sinners this is i think this is a really important Point. It may seem pretty rudimentary, but uh, this is a really important point for what I'm going to bring up in just a second. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, that is our sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. John one twenty nine. the next day, John the Baptist, that is, sees Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. We know that from the Old Testament, lambs are the sacrificial animal. They, they will die, okay? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all right? Now, the reason I go through all those and to say that Jesus came to die for sinners is because people that reject this idea that every human— Ever has the guilt of Adam, and they are considered sinners. That if they, if you reject that idea, they here's they they have a problem with it, with that idea because they say, well, what about babies? What about people uh, babies that are born, stillborn, or aborted children, um, or infants? or the mentally handicapped that can't understand the the things of the gospel, okay? Do we are they sinners? And so it's 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 an emotional argument to to say, well, you know, surely you're not going to look at that little tiny sweet little infant and say you that is a sinner right there, okay? So that's the that's the one of the reasons that people have a problem with this idea of inherited guilt. So for an adult it's not as big of an issue because it's like well whether you have adam's guilt or your own guilt you have sinned you have sinned against god and you need a savior okay but when we think about infants and in that category there then that it, mentally that's a, a an emotional problem for us how can they be considered guilty when they haven't actually committed a sin this infant you know we are is not is not active this this 1 month old child is not in active rebellion against god okay so how can we um say that they are guilty well i would i would argue that they are all guilty of adam's sin okay so yes we we can call them sinners now I'm not I mean I have children of my own I'm not i'm call i'm I'm calling them to repent of their sin and and believe in Jesus Christ okay um but you know' it's not like I'm walking around like you Horrible, evil, wicked sinner, you. You know, when they're when they're an infant, okay. Um, but that's what they are. They they are in opposition to the things of God. They have inherited this original sin, this condition, okay. If if allowed to grow up, they will have a propensity towards evil. Um, and so, so when we think about, you know, are we really going to say that infants are guilty of sin? One way that, and this kind of stepping aside from a biblical argument, but one way I think about it in my head that may be helpful is that for the Christian, we are said to be, we are declared righteous, all right? We are said to be righteous, um, but if you ask my wife right now, is Barrett righteous? She would say, (laughs) absolutely not, okay? Um, But I am declared righteous. When God looks at me, he declares me righteous through Jesus Christ. It's not my own righteousness, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, one day, I will be that, and God declares me righteous right now, okay? In a similar way, this infant is declared a sinner. They are guilty, okay? And if if they lived long enough, they would be a sinner just like you and me, okay? And so that's that's the way I think about it in my in my mind as far as, you know, God is outside of time, um those those types of issues. So that's how God can consider everyone who is every child that is conceived as a sinner. We all have Adam's guilt. He is our representative. Now, what's important about that is that people that reject this idea of original guilt, they will still say that that Jesus died for those infants. And my pushback would be, why would Jesus have to die for them if they're not actually sinners? Jesus died for sinners. So if you die, you are in Adam, okay? and you are a sinner. So if Jesus died for the infant or the aborted child or the mentally handicapped, then they are a sinner, but in in God's grace, he saves them because Jesus died for them, okay? Now when it comes to infants and do they go to heaven and and those types of arguments, there's certainly books written on this topic. Um here's here's what I rest in, okay? I rest in the fact that God is the is the righteous judge, okay? What that means is that when I know all the details, okay, I will have zero issues with God's judgment. I I will actually praise God for his righteous deeds okay and so so any thoughts about oh well if god sent that infant to hell i mean that's just horrible god's awful no you don't have to worry about that okay so i i don't i don't i don't worry with that because i know that God is a righteous judge. Will the judge of all the earth do what is right? So that's what I rest in. And then, obviously, again, I don't have time to get into it, but there's lots of of resources out there as far as uh, walking through different biblical arguments for what happens to infants and the mentally handicapped. And what I'm saying, though, is that we are all in one group. We are sinners. But I think the good thing about being in that group— uh, labeled as sinners is that Christ came and died for sinners. Okay, and so that that is our hope there. Okay, and and that's our hope for for if you've had a, a miscarriage or um or, or an infant that's died or or anything like that, that is your hope that Christ came and died for sinners. They are sinners. We we also believe that God is the one who saves us by His grace. It is His grace alone that that saves us. And so in just like God's grace saves a fifty-year-old who was a uh, you know just living a, a life of complete sin, and then turns to Christ. God works in his heart and by grace saves him. It's that same grace that saves an infant. Okay, so when we put it all on God's grace, God is in charge and and God is is saving them by His grace. All right, so that's that's what I kind of trust in there when I think about this this um, question about infants and, and those types of things. Now, picking up in Romans 5, verse 13, it says, For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, the law here in this passage, also mentioned in verse 20, is talking about the law of Moses the, uh, at Mount Sinai. This is the law that the Jews had, Okay. But Paul writes, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So basically all the people from Adam to Moses before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. I think this is important as well it says that where there is no law or, or excuse me where sin is not sin is not counted where there is no law and paul is saying this was that sin was in the world before the law of moses was given all right and how so death reigned from adam to moses so people were dying as sinners from adam to moses before the law was given and it says, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Transgression is an important word there. A transgression is a disobedience to a direct command. All right? So so the people living from Adam to Moses, not including Adam, of course, did not have a direct command from God on, on various Evils on various sins. Okay, think about like adultery or or the, the Ten Commandments, okay? Adam had a direct command from God, do not eat of this tree. And then the Jews certainly had direct commands from God in the Ten Commandments and the, the laws given to Moses at Mount Sinai. But the people in between there did not have any kind of direct command, yet sin was in the world even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. How is this so? I would argue it's because they are all sinners based on Adam's sin. Okay. So, and then it says Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So what I want to do now is compare and contrast Adam Versus Christ in this passage, okay. And the first one is this: this idea of Adam being the type, and Christ is the antitype. Now, if you haven't heard this phrase before, Adam being the type and Christ is the antitype. Anti does not mean uh, here. Anti does not mean opposite to. It it means like corresponding to. So Adam, in what way is Adam a type of Christ? Well, Adam is one man that represents all of humanity. And Christ is one man that is the representative, the federal head, again, this this idea of federal headship over those who have faith in Jesus Christ, okay? And so they're, they're both representatives, all right? Next, it says that in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. So there's our next uh, um, opposition there or comparison, that the trespass is is compared to the free gift. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. So we have the free gift versus the trespass. We have the many died through one man's trespass and then we have the the grace of God that abounded for many, this free gift of grace that abounded for many in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. So the results of the one man's sin is condemnation. Verse 16, continuing, it says, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Think about the result of the free gift, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the result of one man's sin is condemnation. The result of the free gift is justification. Also, think about the word condemnation. When you think about condemned, being condemned or condemnation, you think about someone, it's punishment, okay, condemnation, but it it's, has to be for guilt. You have to be guilty of something in order to be condemned. So man's one trespass brought condemnation okay? Um, the next one is that death reigned. So in verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. So we have death reigning versus the those who have the free gift of righteousness reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, okay? In the next verse, verse eighteen, we have one trespass that led to condemnation versus one act of righteousness that leads to justification and life for all men. That's verse eighteen. Okay, verse nineteen, we have one man's disobedience that, and so that the many were made sinners. And then we have one man's obedience that the many will be made righteous. No, So disobedience by one man and obedience by the other man. Okay. Also, this idea of many were made sinners and the many will be made righteous. Made sinners in Adam and made righteous in Jesus Christ. This, again, is a very important point here in, in talking about this verb, thinking about this verb made for made sinners and made righteous. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, says this: the verb that Paul uses in both phrases has a forensic, or think about a forensic like legal, a legal flavor after, uh, excuse me, often meaning a point. Okay, so this this verb often means things like a point. It, it's a it, it's a forensic or legal declaration. Okay, Hebrews five one, just to give you some examples of this same Greek Greek verb here for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins in Matthew 25:21 the same verb is used Jesus the, the master says well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful over a little i will set you over much okay that ver, that word set there is the same greek word all right i will set you over much enter into the joy of your master and then Acts seven twenty seven. This is um, this is Stephen recounting the the story of Moses. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying to Moses, "Who made you a ruler and judge over us?" Okay, so that's again the same Greek word uh, right there. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? So we are made sinners. "...in Adam and made righteous in Jesus Christ." Continuing on, because I just wanted to clarify what Douglas Moo was saying there, continuing on with his quote, he says, "...here it refers to the fact that people are inaugurated into the state of sin or righteousness." Paul is insisting that people were really made sinners through Adam's act of disobedience, just as they are really made righteous through Christ's obedience. But this making righteous, in light of the focus throughout this text on one's state or position, means not to become morally righteous, okay, but to become judicially righteous, to be judged, acquitted and cleared of all charges okay so it's a judicial or legal declaration of righteousness and in the same way it's a it's a legal declaration of guilt if you are in Adam all right so i think that's really important there as well as far as thinking about um I believe this passage is teaching that we are not only we not only inherit the consequences of Adam, but we also in some sense are guilty of Adam's sin. All right. So I know this is a this is a deeper Uh, topic and certainly one where there's a lot of information on. So again, uh, email me if you have any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you. Now, in closing, you are either in Adam or in Christ. Just as sure as you are a sinner, you can be equally sure that through faith you are justified, declared righteous, In Christ. All right. Um, Now, our doxology, this is called Doctrine for Doxology. And there's a wonderful doxology in Scripture just a few chapters later in Romans that I think applies to this. As I was, I thought about this verse actually as I was studying. And then I was reading the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And they actually referenced, in, in talking about Romans 5, they referenced this same verse, Romans eleven thirty two, 32. And so uh, just think about this doxology that I'm going to read in light of what we just talked about, okay? Romans eleven thirty two 32 through 36. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all.